Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Last week, brothers and sisters, we got as far as verse 11 in the 11th chapter. My intention this afternoon was actually to work our way through to the end of the paragraph, but you've heard me say that on many occasions. My intention's one thing, but what we're actually going to do is completely another. Because upon preparing, I, I, I felt it best that I remain around the verse 11 and verse 12. That's where we're going to park this afternoon. And by God's grace, as the Lord leads, we will continue through the the chapter and then we will come back to 11 and 12 at a later stage to go back there to the points that I've left on the table that we haven't addressed today. Thus far, we know from the context that Jesus has already spoken to his disciples, as we just read, and has told them, let us go to Judea again. He's told his disciples, it's time for us to now pick up and go back to that hot spot, back to Judea, the place where the Jews were so angry and, and antagonistic against our Lord because of what had taken place not so long ago when Jesus was claiming himself to be equal with God. The disciples at this stage are very uncertain. They don't know why Jesus wants to go back. He just simply says, let's pick up and go. Now, if this had taken place a couple of days ago, it would have made more sense to the mind of the disciples, would it not? Because that's when the messengers came by way of uh, the messengers that came from uh, Mary and Martha coming to Christ and explaining to him that the one that you love, the one in who you love, is ill. So that would make sense to the mind of the disciples at that point in time that we love this Lazarus, we should probably go and visit him. But Jesus stayed two days longer after he received that message. And as far as we know, the disciples didn't question that decision. As far as we know, the disciples didn't ask the question, why don't we go? Jesus, you can do something about Lazarus being sick and ill. You can make him well. We can at least go and and, and stand alongside the ones that we love, the ones that you love, Mary and Martha. None of that. It's very likely because of what takes place a little bit later on, and that is fear. They're afraid. There is fear in their, in their heart because they know what would be awaiting for them if they went back to Judea, if they went back to Bethany. As you all know by now, Bethany is only about maybe 30-minute, 35-minute walk from the temple space there to the east over the Mount of Olives, maybe two and a half to three kilometers away. And they know that if they made their way back to Bethany, it's not going to be long before the Jews who are very angry still, who are very hot in the head towards Jesus, would hear about what is taking place, or about Jesus coming and then possibly coming to do some harm. So the disciples remind the Lord very graciously, it seems. Do you remember Jesus? Do you remember what took place only recently, that the Jews had stones to stone you? Do you really want to go back there, Jesus? And then Jesus, as gracious and loving the good shepherd of the sheep then opens his mouth to proclaim those truths that we meditated upon last week 
verses 9 and verses 10. Beautiful verses. Verses that maybe have puzzled many as to what Jesus may be saying and what the meaning of those those verses are. But if you remember last week, I made two major points. Two points that Jesus, I believe, is making so that he can bring assurance to the heart of his disciples. The first is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over everything. Are there not 12 hours in the day? God is sovereign over everything. Even the span of your own life. That your lives, if you think, are going to be cut short by going down to Judea, think again. God is sovereign. Not a day rolls over unless it's reached the twelfth hour. Not a life will be spent unless every day and every moment that God has decreed in eternity to give you will be lived out. Take rest in this. That God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Even the days of your life. And the second point I believe Jesus is making is now that you know that God is sovereign over your life, that nothing will come your way unless he has decreed it. That your lives will not be cut short. But rather, now that you know this, rest in him and do his work. Walk according to his light. Jesus is the example in this. He's showing that as long as the sun is shining over his life and his life in the incarnation on the earth in the first advent had a limitation, did it not? He had a time where he would be born and a time where he will die upon the cross and then be buried and then rise again to stand or to sit at the right hand of the Father. But as long as the sun is still up on his life, he had work to be done and that work is done. Jesus does accomplish all that the Father has given him. He has come to accomplish all, to fulfill all righteousness, and he does. He walks in the light, and he says that the work of the believer, the work of the Christian, ought to be done in the light of God. So as the sun shines and labor, any meaningful labor cannot be done in this day unless the sun was out because it was an agrarian culture. You couldn't dig, you couldn't plow, you couldn't um, do any animal husbandry, you couldn't do any farming unless the sun was up. So too, Jesus says, without the light of God, you cannot accomplish anything, spiritually speaking. And Jesus himself is the one who's already proclaimed to be the light of the world. And we went and took you back to 1 John, where where the apostle is saying that, that God is light, and that light is fully revealed in the Son of Jesus Christ. That means whatever Jesus does and wherever he goes, he is light. And therefore, he is only accomplishing the work of the Father in pure righteousness, in purity. What the Father would want of the Son to accomplish, Jesus done, Jesus did in absolute perfection, because wherever He went, He is the light. He is the light of God. And therefore, He doesn't stumble. Remember last week I said stumbling is to fall into sin. It's disobedience to God. Christ is incapable of disobeying God, because He is light. In Him, in him there is absolutely no darkness. Absolutely no darkness at all. So now I believe Jesus is saying to the disciples, As I do, you do also. You're not the light of the world, no. But my light is in you. You have come to believe in me, and the light of God is now within you. So follow, follow and walk according to that light. According to the light of my word, according to the light of my spirit, fear not and walk according to the light of God. I believe those words were intended for the disciples to instill a sense of settled assurance in the pit of their soul. To bring comfort and to bring comfort and rest and peace to their hearts.
not only in this trip to Judea, Jesus is not giving them tips for one journey. He's giving them principles for eternity. Because there's going to come a day where Christ is no longer physically with the disciples. He said, as long as I am with you, I am the light of the world. There is a day where Jesus will depart from his disciples and the principles that he's teaching them hold true. They are to walk according to the Spirit. They are to walk according to the light of the word of Christ that illuminates their path into righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know what the will of God is, it's a question that many Christians ask, and it's a good question. What is the will of the Lord? What is the will of the Lord? It is to walk by the Spirit. It is to walk according to the light of Christ. It is to walk according to the Word of God. It is to walk by faith with your eyes fixed upon the one who is the light of the world. That's the will of God for your life. Leave the unknown to Him. Leave the outcomes to Him. Walk according to the light. And do it without fear. Because He's sovereign. So now in verse 11, after the disciples have been given by our Lord the tools to fear not, our Lord reiterates what he said earlier about going to Judea, but now he gives them the reason. You can put your eyes down if you like. In verse 11. After saying these things, He said to them, that's to the disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Initially, they didn't know why they were going to be heading to Judea. But now Jesus says, we're going down because Lazarus is dead. It's about Lazarus. A couple of days earlier, all the disciples had heard when the news had come from Judea that Lazarus was ill and Jesus said that this illness will not end in death, but rather it will be for the glory of God and the glory of God will be displayed or manifest through the Son. The Father will be glorified and the Son will be glorified. But, but now exactly the disciples... But the disciples now know exactly what Jesus, or why Jesus wants to head down to Judea. It's for Lazarus. It's for Lazarus. He's dead. He was well two days ago when Jesus heard the message from the, the sisters, from the messenger. But now, Lazarus is dead. And the disciples are fearful. They're afraid. They they know the, the difficulty and the hardship and the hostility that they may face in going to Judea. You know, it's easy to to actually stand behind a pulpit and often often we we see the ignorance of the disciples and the lack of faith and lack of understanding, I guess lack of the big picture many times. We hear sometimes of when Christ rebukes his own and it's easy to stand back here and say, man up, man up. Men, man up. Christ is with you. Have faith. Man up. Beloved brothers and sisters, we live in the Western world 
Any persecution that we've experienced, I don't think, compares to this sort of persecution. I can certainly say I haven't felt any like this. Maybe a few swear words come my way, maybe horrible gestures, but no one's threatened my life for the sake of the gospel. Jesus, Jesus going back means that the Jews will know that he's back in town. And from previous experience, the Jews have been nothing but antagonistic against our Lord. And the fact that the disciples are with the Lord, then they're implicated in that. And so any hostility upon Christ would naturally come upon his disciples. A threat to the life of Christ is a threat to the life likely of his disciples. It was only shortly earlier that the Jews had stones in their hands. And it surrounded Christ. Where were the disciples? Very likely by his side. And they were on the brink. Had someone thrown the first stone, it's likely that the rest would have followed. This is a scary thing to be facing. Very scary. And I'd like to say, man up. I'd like to say that if I was confronted with something like this, that I would man up. But brothers and sisters, I can tell you in all honesty, I've been faced with a lot less And my heart is melted with fear. All I can say is this. Then moments like this, when persecution actually comes to the life of the believer, you and I don't have the strength to stand apart from the strength of God, the power of God by by the Spirit of God to uphold us by His grace. We cannot stand on our own. And lest we think that we stand, take heed. If you think you stand, lest you fall, the moment you think you can stand, you're on your way down. May the Lord humble us before Him. And when we see or, or, or witness the, the disciples and the difficulties that they're going through, and we, we feel like they're pleading almost with the Lord, and you really want to go back, may you see that we actually put ourselves in their shoes and recognize that apart from the strength that the Lord God gives through His Son, we too would capitulate. Either way, you know, the Lazarus is, is now dead, and our Lord once again says He wants to He wants to return to Judea. Now, the, now the question on your mind is likely the same question that was on my mind when you come to this portion of the Scripture, and it's this: How do you know? We know he knew about the sickness of Lazarus because there was two those messages that came by way of Mary and Martha. But, but there, were, there are no messages that came back and said, hey, that sickness has turned into, into death. How did, Jesus, how did Jesus know? Did the Father reveal it to him? Did somehow the, 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 the divine nature of Christ... Make this revelation? I don't know. I actually don't know. But I know he, he knew. He was made aware. He knew that now Lazarus was dead. How this came about, I don't know. And I think it would be wrong to actually speculate apart from standing back and saying that he is indeed the son of God. He does have omniscient knowledge. It reminds me of the time when Jesus was in Jerusalem earlier 
And in John chapter 5, that, that invalid man at the pool of Bethesda of 38 years, you remember, we're told Jesus came. He, there would have been many invalids, many sick people around that pool. He made a beeline to that man, and then we're told that Jesus knew that he'd been there a long time. Once again, how did he know? I don't know. But he knew. God in flesh. The Apostle John tells us from the very beginning in chapter 2 of this book that bears his name, in chapter 2, verse 2, from 23 through 25, that Jesus didn't need to be told what was inside the heart of man. He already knew what was inside the heart of man. Jesus knew. And now, not two days earlier, but now, according to the divine calendar of the Father, it's time. Did Jesus make his way with his disciples to Judea, to Bethany, to raise Lazarus from the dead? At this point, the disciples don't really know a great deal. They just know their master, their Lord, their rabbi, their teacher says, we must, we must go. Now, we must take note of the wording of the grammar that the Lord uses, and frankly, it's part of the reason I think the disciples are in a little bit of a confusion. Because Christ is not saying, Christ did not say, on my apologies, that Lazarus is dead at first, but rather he uses a different terminology. You see it there, don't you? But rather he says that he has fallen asleep. Now we must take note because Christ never mixes words. Every word that came out of his mouth is intentional. It's Purposed. And that's why we examine and we meditate and consider every phrase, every, every phrase, every clause, every word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's all designed by God. It's all purposed by God to edify the saints, the sheep. And every word that Jesus had spoken is with meaning. There's no f- loose words in the economy of Christ's speaking. And he says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. Why? Why does he use that terminology? Well, for starters, we can go one place. We, we know that this terminology, this, this sleep as a metaphor for death, is not new to the, to the ears of the Jews. It's actually common language. They would have known this because the Old Testament speaks to this and so does the New. Let me give you some examples. First King 2.10 Then David slept with his father and was buried in the city of David. Fast forward, chapter 11, the son of David, Solomon. And Solomon slept with his father and was buried in the city of David, his father. Fast forward a little, I think it's chapter 14 where we speak of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. You remember when the the temple, not the temple, the the kingdom of Israel had split in two, Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. And it says of Rehoboam, it says, and Rehoboam, his son, that's the son of Solomon, reigned in his place. Uh, And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. That terminology is actually throughout the book. I can go on and on and on. In fact, throughout the first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles, you'll find king after king after king. That's the language spoken, that they sleep and then they're buried. They sleep and then they're, they're buried. Now, whether it is a righteous king, a saint, or even an unrighteous king, the terminology is still the same. Whether he's in the northern kingdom, no kings in the north were righteous. Or in the south, the terminology is still the same. Sleep is a metaphor for death. 
And the Jews knew it. The the psalmist David actually makes it very clear in Psalm 13 where he says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Okay, so the Old Testament uses sleep as a metaphor for death. And how about the new? Well, the new is no different. The same language is is used in the new. You You remember the first Christian martyr recorded for us in Scripture? You remember who it was? Stephen. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, you remember the Jews, the angry Jews, had, had stoned Stephen because of that momentous sermon, you may call it, that he preached there in Jerusalem. And then breathing his last almost, we're told, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice to he, Stephen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of those who witnessed the resurrection of Christ, the the passage I hope that is familiar to all of you because we've referenced it quite a bit. He says there, he says, Then he, that's Christ, appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. First Thessalonians chapter 4, reassuring words uh, for, written for the, for the believers in that day in the, in the church of, of, of Thessalonica. We read, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. You may not grieve, sorry, you, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen Asleep, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I can give you many more examples, but you get the picture. The question is, we recognize that that terminology is used in the Old Testament and we also recognize it's used in the New. The question is, why? Why do you think it is used in the old and the new, and why is Jesus using it here? Beloved brothers and sisters, I submit to you, and I suspect it is because of the bigger picture that death plays, or the part that death plays in the overarching plan of God. You see, when you go to sleep, there's an assumption. What is that assumption? That you're going to wake up Every time you close your eyes, 99.99% of the times you go to bed and close your eyes, you're likely going to fall asleep. Several hours later, you open your eyes and you come out of bed. I said 99.99 because one day it may be that we die in our sleep. That's what sleep is. One closes their eyes, but then they're expected to open their eyes at some point. Sleep doesn't have a sense of finality like we think of death when we think of death, especially the way the world thinks of death, that when you die, it's over. It's all said and done. There's a sense of reality to those words. You hear it in their speech. You better live it up because when you're dead, you're, you're dead. But beloved, death never, physical death never has the last say. Not biblically. Some think there's no coming back, and it's true in a sense. But in death, you don't cease to exist. And that's a very important point. 
It's actually a very terrifying point. Because when one dies physically, that person will one day wake up. And when he or she wakes up, you're faced with your maker. Death will not have the last say. The judge of all the earth will. Jesus Christ will have the last say. The one the Father has given to execute all judgment. Death is like sleep. But there's one day that everyone will wake from that sleep. And then judgment. Some have said that death is only descriptive of when the saints die. But throughout scripture, it's both for the saints and those who are not believers as well. In a sense, in the New Testament, it is predominantly definitely for the saints. But there's a sense that everyone falls asleep, so to speak, in death, but then will be woken up. So John 11, being a chapter on the resurrection, you'd expect our Lord to use that terminology, don't you think? To bring the point across. Physical death will not have the last say. There will be a resurrection from the dead. And that resurrection, beloved, will be both for saved and unsaved people. More on that later. As we go through this chapter, I'm going to emphasize some points about death. I'm going to emphasize some points about death and some misconceptions as well. And I think it's prudent at this point for me to bring up one very erroneous misconception attached to death. And that is the concept of soul sleep in the intermittent state. You see, when one dies and is buried, the, the body is definitely in a lifeless state. It's the, the body is, is, is buried maybe six feet under and there's no life, there's no heart that beats, there's no lungs that fill with air. But what happens to the soul? The, the soul sleep or proponents of soul sleep in the intermittent state would suggest that the soul then is, is inanimate, it's, it's unconscious, it's not aware of anything. It's almost as though the soul is dead, practically dead, until the final resurrection they would say that the soul cannot exist apart from the body. Now, there is a sense that the body without the soul or the soul without the body, the, the material without the immaterial, there is a sense that that's an unusual state. Because the properties of humanity is that there is material and immaterial, that there's a body and a soul. Christ came to this earth and he was human. So he had a real body. You could touch him. He ate, he drank, and he had a real soul. But this, the concept of soul sleep, is completely unbiblical. The Bible is very clear. There is a separation from body and soul in death when the body lies in the ground lifeless. And I don't mean to be crude or disrespectful, but if one was to go to a burial site and dig up any grave, there's going to be remnants of the physical body of the person that was laid there, assuming the thieves don't get there first. 
There'd be a decomposing body and remnants of the decomposing body. There'd be bones in the ground. But where is the soul? The soul's not just hovering there in an inanimate state. The soul departs from the body. The soul remains conscious and fully aware of its reality. It is in a disembodied state, true, but it's still alive. And the soul is aware of where it's at and the plight that it's in and the condition that it's in. It's not aware of what the soul has left behind. Because the book of Ecclesiastes actually gives us us a clue. It tells us in chapter 9, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Some reason, some think that there's, you know, the, the soul is in heaven looking upon the whole earth as though they can see everything. They're not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. The reality of where that soul is in the death of that person is real. And they know and they're aware. Remember Luke chapter 16? You remember the parable in Luke chapter 16? The parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Different Lazarus. Not the same one. We don't want to mix the two up. That was a fairly common name in this time. Lazarus comes from the root Greek or Hebrew word Eliezer. This is a different Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. But you remember that both the, 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 the Lazarus, the, the man who used to eat the crumbs that fell off the table of the rich man, he was in the bosom of Abraham in bliss, in glory. He could see, he could hear, he, could, he knew the state that he was in. And yet the rich man was also aware of the state that he was in. In agony. Give me a drop of water. Let's go tell my, my brothers. Here's a way. In Revelation chapter 6, we're told, When the Lamb opens the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Who's declaring? Who's declaring? The slain, the saints who were slain for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're conscious, they're aware of what is taking place. They're communicating with God. Where are they? In the presence of God. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, probably one of the clearest passages that we normally go to when we're speaking about this topic. He says there, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent in the body, that means in death. That means when the body dies. That means physical death. The soul departs. It, it is a disembodied state. The, the body is, is, is lifeless, but the soul, if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, if you have by grace, through faith, apprehended Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins, you will depart in the body and find yourself in the bliss and the glory with Him For eternity, unconscious, hibernating until the resurrection, no such thing. The Bible teaches otherwise. 
Our Lord affirmed this truth. He affirmed it very clearly. That's Jesus. Do you remember where? Do you remember what words Jesus said to affirm the truth? That to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Praise God for the words of the Apostle Paul. The words of Christ through his apostle. Because Jesus said to the apostles that, that, they will, that the Spirit of God will make all truths known to him. They'll make his truth known to him. What he has said, the Spirit of God will make it known to them, including the apostle Paul. Can you remember, when, when Jesus, can you remember at what point Jesus said something that would give us the affirmation to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord? Give me, let me give you a hint. On the cross. On the cross. Let me read it to you. Luke 23. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him saying, Do, not fe- do you not fear God? The other, my apologies. The other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, now he looks to Christ. His only hope. Jesus, remember remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, that is Christ, said to him, truly I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not in a week, not in ten years, not in a thousand years, not after you go to purgatory. Forgiveness of full and final to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. What a glorious truth, beloved. To be instantly ushered into the presence of the Lord our Savior. To see Him as He is. To worship at His feet. The day that our faith becomes sight. Sure, we'll long for our resurrected bodies, the glorified bodies that are to come in the resurrection that we will enjoy with all the other saints at the same time. We'll have to wait for the final resurrection, the consummation of all things for those bodies to come in the glorified state. But to be present with the Lord? Instant. Instant. No waiting. Instantly. Our faith becomes sight just like that. This is our hope. Not the here and now, not the things that pass away, not the allurements of this world. This is our hope. To be with Jesus for all eternity. To be indeed absent in the body and present with the Lord. That is our hope. Now don't get me wrong, the fact that he's giving you air to breathe and your heart still beats and your lungs still filled with air means that in his sovereignty, he wants you down here. You still have work to do. He'll provide you with the hours and he'll give you the light that shines within you, Christian. Walk according to that light, according to his spirit, according to his word. Do that and do that graciously. Receive from him whatever comes in gladness and in joy. But at the same time, have your eyes set upon eternity. 
The things to come, what is fixed in eternity will not perish, it will not be taken away. Build the treasures on the earth, and it can go just like that. Your health you can exercise every single day, and it can go like that, a blood clot to the brain, and you're gone and you're in a wheelchair. A heart that stops beating, and you're gone, and you're, in the, you're driving home, and you're gone. These things can be taken just like that, but eternity with Christ and the bliss of heaven is forever imperishable. Nothing can destroy it. The moth cannot eat it. The rust cannot corrode it. Beloved brothers and sisters, fix our eyes upon eternity. Because the treasure of eternity is Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says to be absent with the body, in the body. Just to be present with the Lord. Christ is the treasure of eternity. Is he the treasure of your soul? Is Christ the treasure of your soul? Even now, are you? Is that where your hope lies? In Jesus Christ? That's the outcome of our faith, beloved. And the day is coming. The day is coming where we receive the outcome of our faith. Of course, it begins with being present with the Lord in the finality, in the consummation, in the resurrection, in the resurrection, the final resurrection. When all things are made new, our hearts long for that day. But until then, let's fix our eyes upon eternity. Listen to the encouraging words of the Apostle Peter in First Peter, when he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Don't skip that point. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you do not, though you have not seen him, you love him. Can you say those words honestly? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A lot of what was mentioned here is in the finality of all things. But beloved, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Physical death will not have the last say. It's but sleep. Sleep for the body, but not the soul. For the unbeliever. What happens to the soul of the unbeliever? Is soul rest reserved only for the unbeliever? No. As it is with us, and as we saw in the parable that Jesus gave, with Lazarus at the bosom of Abraham and the rich man, 
as it is with the believer who's placed his trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord, to be absent in the body for an unbeliever. One who stands upon his own merits, by his own strength, that person will stand on their own without the atoning, propitiating blood of the Son of God that was shed for sinners and by faith applied to the life of a sinner. They stand on their own and the moment they're absent with the body, they're tormented in an eternal torment under the eternal wrath of God. A wrath that never ends. Millions and billions and billions and billions of years. And it does not end. It just continues and continues and continues. And God is just in doing it. Annihilationism is not a biblical principle. The eternal wrath of God is. We think sometimes that we're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. We're not. So the message of this preacher to anyone out there who hasn't placed their trust in the Lord, I'm saying make terms of peace with him while you can. Believe upon the only saviour, the only light of the world, the only fountain of life, the eternal life, Jesus Christ. Because the day is coming when we all will face him. Some for the resurrection of joy and others for the resurrection of judgment. Make terms of peace. Because that day, although the soul continues, although there is a resurrection of the dead after, after the physical death of a person, the moment we die physically, that's it. There is no mercy from that point on. No matter who prays for you at this end, no matter how many supplication, how many pleads your relatives, none of that. You're not in purgatory. No one can go and give some indulgences and, and, and pay your way out of the, the torment. That you know, there's none of that. It's, that is it. The gavel has struck down and the judge has said guilty. Beloved brothers and sisters, is Christ your hope? Is he your justification? Is he your wisdom? Is he your righteousness, your redemption? Is he your only boast? Because on that day you won't have another boast. It's either you are in Christ or you're on your own. And if you're on your own, you are under the torment of God. Will Christ usher you in into the glorious presence of the Father, the eternal glories of the Father? Will he say those words to you? Upon the day that you die today, you'll be with me in paradise. Come on in, good and, good and faithful servant. That's where inexpressible joy is. It will be with our King forever and ever and ever. But the other side is where there is weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. That's the reality and there's no escaping it. There is no middle ground. The Bible says over and again there is no middle ground. You're either in Christ or you belong to the other category, death. You're either in the light or you're in darkness. You're either life with Christ or your death. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. Oh, that your hearts and mind would be that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No one more worthy. Death is ugly. I'll be speaking more about death as we move on into the chapter. Death is ugly, beloved. Let me say this. It takes away what is dear to our hearts. It robs us 
of the people we love. I can't imagine how difficult it is to lose a loved one who's close. And I'm not, not playing that down. It's devastating. It's tragic to lose a loved one. It is tragic. But that's the reality of that sin has brought into our world. This is a fallen world. Sin has come into the world and through that sin or by that sin is death. It's tragic, it's painful, it's sorrow. Full. It hurts, I know, like nothing else. And Jesus himself, just in a few verses, will weep over Lazarus. Not so much because he's going to remain in that state. That's not it at all. But he sees the agony and the pain that death has brought to the ones that he loves and it breaks his heart. And he weeps. It's agonizing. But beloved brothers and sisters, we ought not to grieve over the dead like the world grieves because we have hope that those who die in Christ, as I said earlier, are present with the Lord. They're in bliss. They're in indescribable, unspeakable joy. The separation is difficult. It's gut-wrenching. It's hard. But our hope is in Christ. That text I quoted before, but we do not want you, the Apostle Paul, to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may grieve as others do, who have no hope, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the point. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Death will not have the last say. Eternity is in view. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved brothers and sisters. This book is a book of promises. It's a glorious book of promises. Promises that our Savior has made to his people, to his sheep. The good shepherd has said, I am the good shepherd. You're my sheep. I have called you by name. I've brought you into my fold. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will take you to green pastures. You will follow after me. I'm the light of the world. I'll give you the direction to take. I'm giving you my word so you would light up your path and lamp to your feet. I will get you home. I know the way home. I will get you home. Believe upon me. Believe upon my word. The promises of our Lord are contained in this scripture. Are we believing upon them? Are we believing upon the word of God, the word of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Are we believing? Do we believe in the promises of our Lord? Beloved, Do you have the mentality and the resolve in your heart that if Jesus said it, that settles it? If Jesus opens his mouth and makes a promise, do you apprehend that promise as gospel truth, as absolute? Nothing and no one, no principality, no power, no human ability, no spiritual ability, nothing invisible, nothing visible in this world, in this universe, in this cosmos can break the promises of God. Our brother read it today in Psalm 145. You are faithful to all your word, he says in that psalm. Do you believe that God is faithful in his word? That Christ keeps his word? That none of his promises fall to the ground? Do we believe? Have we apprehended him, his claims, his words, his teaching, and his promises by faith. Have we apprehended those by faith? Because this life, apart from Christ, is fearful. It's scary. I stand before you and I think about these things. 
And believe me, brothers and sisters, the moment I take my heart off the Lord and His promises and faith in Him and the fact that He's preserved my eternity, I fear, I, I find myself the fear hitting, going through my bones when I think about tragedies that could come my way. And I'm not saying dwell on these things. This is not healthy. But I'm saying apart from Him, we will fall apart. I'm not standing here to say that I'm strong, that when the tragedy and the calamity comes, and it will, if the Lord tarries, we will all experience death. Because as I said, when we began this chapter, death is a reality. And the, and the mortality rate is not 99.9%, but it is like 100%. And that means if the Lord tarries 100 years or so, there will be no one in this room that, that is in this room today. We will all be absent with the body. But the question is, will we all be present with the Lord? This is reality. It will take place. Death is real. Do we believe? Have we placed our trust in Jesus Christ? The one who is the resurrection and the life. The one in whom there is no life apart from him. The one who is the fountain of life. Have we come to Jesus to eat upon him? That believing he is the bread of life, the fountain of life. Do we believe He is the eternal life? Do we believe that in Him are all the spiritual blessings in the heaven? Do we believe that in Him is everything that is required for the satisfaction, the complete and total satisfaction of my soul? Have I come to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins? Because without His shed blood, without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, I stand before the judge of all the earth on my own. And the moment I open my eyes, I know. I know what I've done. That would be a, such a scary reality. And I pray that that's not something that comes upon any of you. Do we believe? Do we believe in his words? Brethren, as I said earlier, the, the disciples of Jesus Christ have been following him and they've been clinging to him and remaining with him up, in this, up until this point for a little over three years. They've remained with the Lord. And if we work our way through the Gospels, in fact, even as we've worked our way through the Gospel of John, we've seen the disciples come out and say to them things that they probably shouldn't have said, and they haven't seen the big picture as they should have seen. We've seen Christ even rebuke his disciples in the Gospels. We, we, we've, we've seen that how they've been, in instances, immature in their faith. We've seen how, in instances, they, they couldn't see the things that Christ was trying to teach them. Oh, ye of little faith. How long will I tolerate with you? We've seen that and we've seen over and again. And it's quite easy to stand here and sort of point the finger at the disciples. The poor fellas, their, whole, their life is in this book and we can do that. And I don't encourage it. Because the moment we do that, remember that verse. Take heed if you think you stand. Lest you fall. But I think, brothers and sisters, that... What we find in their response to our Lord in verse 12, I actually think there's faith there. You see, what they say here is, they say, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go and waken him. And the disciples said to him, this is verse 12, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. And then Jesus says, now Jesus spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. It seems at first view that what is taking place here is there's ignorance in the heart of the disciples. Their eyes haven't been opened. They're, they're misinterpreting what Jesus is saying. They're taking things literally. What's going on? Are they slow of mind? 
I just want us to think about what's taking place here for a moment. The disciples we know had a fairly good understanding of Scripture. As I said earlier, they had been following our Lord for three years, and our Lord Jesus Christ has taught them many things over those three years. Also, some of these disciples were also disciples of another great prophet who was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was a man that was fully submersed in Scripture. He knew the Scripture well, and he taught his disciples. So they'd been with John, learned the Scripture. They'd come now, and they've spent some time with Jesus. They were well-versed in the oracles of God, yes. On many occasions, they were slow of understanding, and sometimes they couldn't see the big picture, and they needed to grow in their faith, the maturity in their faith. They needed to grow in their exegesis of what Jesus was saying. I give you that much. But when it came to Old Testament sleep terminology... I think it was pretty common to their ears. That they knew when Jesus, or they would have known that when they read that or heard that being taught in the Old Testament, that sleep did in fact point to, to death. And to add to this, I submit to you that, that upon fearing of returning back to Judea, there could have been a possibility that the solutions or what they were hearing were interpreted in the, in the light of their fear. And, and, and it could be a possibility, I can't be sure, but it could be a possibility that they were replying in a sense where they just really didn't want to go back to Judea. It's scary. Do we really want to go back there, Jesus? So they say something that seems to be at least logical, where they said, well, great, if Lazarus is asleep, then great, he'll get better. Isn't that healing 101 if your relative or if you're not well? Isn't that what the doctor would recommend? Get some rest, get some sleep. Sounds logical. That would be balm for Lazarus if that was what Jesus was saying. Sounds like good advice. But I think they're a little confused with the words of our Lord. You see, I said earlier that now the, Jesus and his disciples, they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Best case scenario, they're about a day, maybe a day and a half away from Bethany. But it's likely, and I said this earlier a few weeks, that it's very likely that they're further up north, probably 30 to 15 kilometers south of the Sea of Galilee, which would make it about a three to a four day journey to where Bethany, to where Lazarus is. I say that because, and I didn't say it earlier, but let me just mention this really quickly. When the messenger came to tell Jesus that the one whom you love is ill, if Christ was only a day journey, then you think of it this way. He's come and said, the one you love is ill. And then he's gone back. Two days later, Christ goes. So from that point, two days, and one day to the location is three days. How could Lazarus have been in the tomb or dead for four days? That makes me feel very uncomfortable some will say something along the lines of when the messenger had just barely left Bethany, Lazarus died, and by the time he made it to Christ, he was already dead. No, that makes me feel too uncomfortable to, to mention. Because Jesus, we just agreed, is the Son of God, and he knows all things. It's very likely that he knew exactly when Lazarus was dead. It's likely that that's now when he wants to depart to be with him. And so by the time he gets back to Bethany, it's likely three to four days have actually, have, actually, have actually passed. So if it is actually three to four days journey, even, even if we give the benefit of the doubt and say it's only one or one and a half days, when Jesus says, I go to wake him up, by the way, I'll speak to that in future weeks. He's probably gone to sleep and woken up several times by the time they get there. 
Like even if it's only a day and a half. A day's journey means one day, rest overnight, then the next day. Lazarus would have gone to sleep and woken up, gone to sleep, woken up, if it's three or four days, probably gone to sleep and woken up four or five times. Why would the disciples say, let him sleep? Why would Jesus even come to them and say, I'm going to wake him up when, when he's very likely in the mind of the disciples will be not even a quarter of the way there and he's going to be awake because who sleeps more than seven, eight, nine, ten hours, twelve hours if you're really sick? At this point, I think these are logical men. I think they are clever men. I think they are well-versed in Scripture and I think they are putting two and two together and they still literally maintain that Jesus is speaking about sleep. But Why? I can't be sure. But I suspect it comes down to how they viewed our Lord. I suspect it's because of what is absolutely fundamental to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I suspect that they're holding to the literal meaning of the word sleep because they had faith. Now, Jesus does re- speak later on and says that he's doing these things and he's glad that Lazarus has died so that they would have faith. And let's not think that they didn't have any faith, but rather to strengthen the faith is what Jesus, what Jesus means. And I'll, I'll, I'll make that point in a moment. Because as I said, these men had come to believe the claims of our Lord, believe the claims of John the Baptist, who declared this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John the Baptist also declared that this is the Son of God, one in nature with God, one in essence with God. He is God himself. And these apostles who were with John left John because of the declaration of John, the profession of John, and went to Christ who is the Messiah, the Holy One from God. You remember the words of the disciples, what they declared from their own mouth back in John chapter 6, when, when multitudes left Jesus because Jesus had some words that are hard to digest, hard words, they said. Back then, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the next day after Jesus had fed the 5,000, you remember the disciples were there with Christ, that is the inner 12. And all the the people had, had rejected Christ, even the disciples who had followed him for a while, we don't know how long, had rejected and, and departed and abandoned the Lord. And the 12 that are around him, and Jesus says, are you two going to abandon me? Are you two going to leave? And this is what Peter says on behalf of all the disciples. Why I say that, he says, Lord, to whom shall not I go but we go he speaks on behalf of the twelve to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed you have the words of eternal life and we have believed what do we believe we believe the words of eternal life we believe the words that come out of your mouth we believe your believe your claims your teachings we believe your testimony Jesus we have come to believe and have come to know that knowledge is not human knowledge That knowledge is the knowledge of God that penetrates the very being of a person, places that you and I don't have access to. Only he has. To make that soak into the very being to know. To truly know. Not to know, but to know in here is a work of the Spirit of God. And we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That happened about a year and a half or two years ago. The rest left because the sayings of Christ were too hard for them. But these disciples, they remained. And yet now Jesus says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And these disciples, rather than to take those words as they ought with an understanding of the Old Testament, they take them literally 
And even though literally they don't make sense, why would they do that? Beloved, I can't be sure of this, of course. But I believe this. Because they have come to believe and know that Jesus is the Son of God, that their rabbi, that their teacher, that their Lord cannot lie. If two days ago Jesus said that the illness of Lazarus will not lead to death, then when Jesus says he's asleep, could it be that they're holding and apprehending the words of their Savior? Our Savior cannot lie. He's the Holy One from God. His testimony is true. Let all men be liars, but not Christ. Could it be that the disciples had an immature faith, a small faith, but still a genuine faith in Christ to apprehend what he said? How can we take that to mean that Lazarus was dead when in our minds death means death? How can we? Could it be that these disciples had true faith and they were exercising that faith and they were prepared to believe even what may sound to be completely illogical because they believed the words that came out of their Messiah's mouth. Let me submit that to you. And then let me submit to you also that as the good shepherd, he never keeps his sheep in the dark because that's a misunderstanding. Even though I believe they claimed his words and that's part of the reason why they're holding on to Lazarus being asleep, Jesus then says plainly to them, he is dead. I love that. That will take him at his word. However, if our understanding is errant, if our understanding is not what he intended, then I believe as the good shepherd, he will illuminate his word to our heart so that we apprehend and embrace that which is true. That which is true. Childlike faith. It needs to mature. It needs to grow. The misunderstandings need to be corrected. But I believe that these men had a faith in Jesus Christ. I believe part of the reason why they would forbid to believe in and of themselves that this Sleep that Jesus speaks of is death is simply because of the words of our Lord in verse 4. So beloved, I want to ask you this question in closing. Do you believe? I know this book is a big book and I know there's a lot in here that you don't understand I say that because there's a lot in here I don't understand the question is not do we understand it all although we should pursue and aspire and meditate and trust the spirit of God to illuminate his word to our hearts but the question is are we able to say even though I may not understand yet I believe It's not because I believe because this book is logical or anything else. It's because he has made himself known to me. He's shone his light, his revealing light into my soul. The God of all the universe has made his glory known. 
He shone his glory and gave me the revelation of his glory as light in my soul through the faith face of Jesus Christ. I have come to know the God of the universe and the God of the universe has spoken in his word and has given me a resolute, a resolute belief that this word is true. The word of Christ is true. If it came out of his mouth, if Jesus said it, that settles it, I believe. Because let's face it, You need that type of faith to believe that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became man. And that he died upon the cross to become the resurrected Savior. And even now, although you have not seen him, he's at the right hand of the Father, and you believe that he's interceding for you even now, even though your eyes and my eyes have not seen him. Faith. Faith is not illogical. Faith is supernatural. Faith is not not because you've figured it all out, because you've got good grammatical skills to read through the word and you've figured it all out, you've got charts all over you. That could be an exercise, probably a fruitful exercise. But you can do that all day, every day, if the light of God has not shone in your heart to reveal his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a meaningless exercise. Because what you require is faith of a little child to apprehend Christ and his claims and his teaching and his word and say, Lord, I'm going to commit myself to your word for the rest of my life. Teach me from your hand. But until then, I'm going to believe. And I'm going to apprehend your promises. I'm going to walk according to your promises. By your strength, I am going to walk by faith, not by sight, until you take me home, until I'm absent in the body and present with the Lord, no longer existing in faith, but now I see him in all his glory and in all his splendor. May he be honored. Let's pray.